Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I have a recurring dream. And in this dream, I am about to preach. And I cannot find my notes. And I do not know what passage I'm about to preach. Sometimes I know the passage, but it doesn't make any sense. It's like Acts 56 or John 35 or Lamentations, which might actually exist, but I know nothing about. There I am, ready to preach. And I get up and I have nothing to say. And slowly, all of you out in the audience start to leave. Or another version, John Piper sits right there. The question is, why was I more oriented to you leaving or John Piper critiquing than I was to pleasing the Lord? What is it in me that has this fear that replays itself time and time again? Why didn't I picture the Lord and his delight or dissatisfaction with my preaching rather than people's delight or dissatisfaction with my preaching. And what does that say about the state of my heart? See, this dream evidences a fear of man rather than a fear of the Lord. I've heard recently that our anxiety levels as an American culture are higher than they've ever been. We've come out of pandemic, we are marked by fear and anxiousness. This morning, I think that our text speaks to this issue of our fearfulness in a unique way that gives hope. And so as we kind of invite the Lord to meet with us and to open this text and and show us what he says to us, I think there is a unique answer to our fearfulness. And here's what it is. I think this is the answer that the Lord has for us. God's salvation relocates our fear. God's salvation for his people actually switches our fear from being horizontally oriented so that I would be afraid of you or afraid of people or afraid of some kind of earthly circumstance. And I would translate that fear into a fear of the Lord. I think that's what the Lord has for us this morning. We've been in Exodus since January. And in many ways, today kind of feels climactic as we've been talking about uh, these plagues and this kind of chess match that happens between Pharaoh and, and the Lord. We've been invited into this kind of showdown. And the word chess match is actually a, a, a good illustration. The pieces have been moved around the board. And many times it feels like Pharaoh has been cornered. Like we've got a check on Pharaoh, but he kind of squirts out of it and finds another way around it. As we kind of draw into this closing text of Exodus 13 and 14, we're going to find that the Lord finally says, checkmate. Well, this seems to be the decisive moment for Moses and Israel and Pharaoh. And as we kind of see this kind of checkmate, 
or chess match kind of come to a, a climax this morning, we're going to see this happen in three different movements. And we're going to talk about this issue of fear and God's leading. Verses 17 through 22 of chapter 13, we're going to see that God leads. And then in chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, we're going to see that God leads us into conflict. And then in 14, 10 through 32, we're going to see that God leads us into conflict to save. And all the while, he's transferring that fearfulness to a confidence in the fear of the Lord. Let's dive in this morning. I think we have a lot of text in front of us here, and I want to get started. I'm anxious to see what the Lord has for us this morning. Let's start with chapter 13, verses 17 through 22, that God leads. So look at 17 Thirteen, seventeen. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not let them or lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, "Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt." But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. See, I want to give you just three evidences from our text that 17 through 21 is giving us this argument that God leads his people. And the first thing we see is that God takes this scenic route. In verses 17 through 18, God takes the, he doesn't take the simplest path there. He takes this long-winded route. He doesn't go through Philistia. He comes around this other way through the wilderness. Secondly, Israel trusts God to lead. In verse 19, you have this weird statement about the bones of Joseph. And we might think it's strange that, that Moses, in all of his haste to leave Egypt, stops to collect a dead man's bones and carries it along with them. We see some reasoning there in in verse 19, right? God, it's the statement from Genesis chapter 50 from Joseph. God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here. Now, if you recognize there was a prophecy made to Abraham in Genesis 15 that for 430 years, the Israelites would be enslaved to a people and then they would be let go. And so Joseph, by faith, is saying, I know that you're going to be down here in Egypt for some 430 years, but take my bones with you, right? And so Moses then is grabbing onto this by faith, and he's taking up the bones, and he's taking it with them. Well, what's the point? Why is it included here? Why does Moses see fit to include this? See, the larger point that's being made is that God knew this was going to happen some 500 years ago, and this is the God who's traveling with his people now. The God of prophecy who predicted this 500 years ago is their traveling partner. That's the road trip they're taking is with this sovereign God. So there's evidence number two that God leads. Evidence number three is that God's presence goes with Israel in verses 20 through 22. We love this thing, the cloud and fire 
these massive pillars. I can't even imagine what this would look like, this glory. Verse 21 tells us that they allow Israel to travel day and night. And I think they would provide a protective element too, because if you're going to pick a fight, you don't usually pick a fight with a guy with a 40-foot pillar of fire in front of him, right? There's a device that's used here in the text that's used a few times this morning in 13 and 14, where, where Moses repeats a particular phrase of importance. And this is what he does in 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire. He repeats himself to kind of emphasize the importance of this, that God is present with them. Largely, it should be known that God himself was present with his people. And this is important because the book of Exodus is telling us the story of how an exiled people come back into the presence of God. And right now, he's with them. Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, day and night. I got to tell you, I'm not very good at chess. I don't have the patience for it. But if someone who knew chess were to stand next to me and put their hand on my shoulder and say, no, no, Jason, that's a dumb move. You're going to die. And that was happening here with the nation of Israel. God's presence is going with them into the midst of this conflict. God's visible presence with them is going with them into this conflict, cloud and fire, day and night, always with them, never leaving them. See, Christian, God is present to guide you. He's with you to lead you where he wants you to be. He discloses himself to you as you need it. He convicts you of sin as necessary. He prompts and he leads you as necessary. See, Paul describes that we are led by the Spirit. And before we get this kind of image in our mind of what it is to be led by the Spirit, that all of a sudden it's like I tune into the radio frequency and God leads me out to McDonald's or whatever else. What Paul is describing is actually thinking like God. Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5, when we're led by the Spirit, we're thinking like God thinks because we've been renewed our heart of stone has been stripped away. We've been given a heart of flesh. See, as we share the mind of Christ, we're led by his spirit to do the things that Christ himself would want to do. See, the point is that God has not left you to do it alone. No matter what he's commanded you to do, he has empowered you in the presence of the spirit and is present with you through the Spirit to accomplish that thing. It's like you have your own personal pillar of fire or pillar of cloud. We can trust in God's goodness as he leads us. But I think God has something more to show us this morning than just that he leads his people. The thing that the text invites us to is not just that God leads us into still waters and quiet pastures of Psalm 23. God leads us into battle. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. 
The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and will, give, and will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? What we have, uh, that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt uh, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel that the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians um, pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and uh, encamped at the sea by Pihiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. See, God leads his people into conflict. And this starts off with this idea that God directs Israel to camp at this Pi-Hiroth. First of all, that's a mouthful. Let's just all acknowledge it, right? I don't know what that is or what it means, but it's some city, some place where Israel is to camp. And in fact, what God says is they're to turn back and go back to this part that's along the sea. And so not only did God take them in this kind of circuitous route, he's led them to this compromised place where they're going to be between the wilderness and the sea and eventually between the armies of Egypt. But more importantly, he tells us exactly why he does this in verses 3 and 4. Look at what he says in 14, 3 and 4. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Do you see this kind of back and forth thing that God is predicting? He's saying, I'm going to, or Pharaoh's going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and Pharaoh's going to respond this way, and I'm going to culminate it to this. Look at what he says. Pharaoh will say, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, verse 4. Pharaoh will pursue, in verse 4. God will get glory, verse 4, and the Egyptians will know. See, these statements show us that God has this meticulous sovereignty of exactly what's going to happen. God's not guessing. He's not just smart, and he's he's playing the odds. Something is at work here. Primary reason that he's doing this, according to verse 4, is that he is going to get glory over Pharaoh and his host. Now, we want to tune our ears in this morning to that idea of glory because it comes up a couple times in chapter 14. He says it in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host. Notice we're not playing a chess match here. God's hardening the heart of Pharaoh, causing this particular thing to go on. See, Egypt realizes what has happened in verses 5 through 9, and they go all in. Pharaoh gets his chariot. He selects 600 chariots, and he puts his officers on them. And any other jankety chariot chariot that they can find in Egypt, they're putting men in. And so everything of, of Pharaoh's army, all of his chariots, are coming after the nation of Israel. It's like Pharaoh has just lost his mind, forgotten everything that has happened in the last five chapters, and is now pursuing Israel to the nth degree. 
In fact, this has been the consistent posture of Pharaoh throughout our time in Exodus, right? It doesn't matter what logic says. When I keep interacting with this God, people keep dying, bad things keep happening, but I'm going to double down. So starting in chapter 7, working all the way up through chapter 5, Pharaoh's actions have been marked by overconfidence and stubbornness. You know, they say a good chess player knows what's coming next. It's probably why I'm not very good. I don't have the patience to wait, and I don't have the knowledge to understand. God isn't just predicting responses from Pharaoh. He's actually causing them. He's hardening Pharaoh's heart. So the true analogy of what's happening here in Exodus 14 is not a a two-sided game of chess. It's one God sitting in a chair and rotating the table to play both sides. God is moving his pawn, Pharaoh, around the board for his glorifying purposes. So we recognize not only is God leading us, God's leading everything in the world. He doesn't just lead his people through his spirit. God has his fingers in everything. There's a couple of passages that just highlight this. That I just have to bring them up because they're, they're beautifully stated. Lamentations 3. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Who is there in all of God's earth who says something and it happens? No one. When my kids were young, we used to play this game because we would talk about creation and when God spoke, it happened, right? And so I'd say, hey, let's try it ourselves. Let's, let's try to say, I want a birthday cake. So give me a birthday cake. And then no birthday cake would show up and the kid would start crying and maybe not. We don't have the power in our words to create things. Only God speaks and it comes to pass. Isaiah chapter 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my good purpose. See, no one else on the earth does what God does. He speaks and it comes to pass. He knows what's going to happen because he affects it with his words. See, theologians for years have had this term that describes how God's sovereign control of the universe comes to bear on our lives. And it's this word, it's called providence. It's actually a Latin word. It's a combination of two words, pro, before, and videre, to see. God sees beforehand. We commonly talk talk about it as provision. It's the thought that every circumstance in which we find ourselves is is wrought by God himself. So if you're at the funeral, God brought you there. If you're in the boss's office, God brought you there. He's not absent from your circumstance. He has so structured the world that you're in so that you are exactly where he had planned for you to be. There's a quote, I think... Uh, one of our, our members had brought it to me a few years ago and was talking about when you complain against the weather, you sin against God. No conviction to be found there. See, it's true this morning that God's good providence can lead us into bad situations. God sometimes gives us the best, worst route. Does that make any sense? 
He gives us the best, worst route. It feels like us, like, to us like it's awful. But in the midst of it, God is doing his sweet, loving work. This route that Israel has taken may not be easy or without conflict, but it's the most efficient way for God to address the fears that he finds in his people. Christian, don't lose heart. God knows where you are. He's not absent from you. In fact, he's brought you to this place. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. Say that again. God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must learn to trust his heart. We don't know what God's doing. We have to learn to trust his righteous, loving character. Listen, it's not lost on me this morning that some of you are in a tough spot. You've stacked difficulty upon difficulty upon difficulty. Remember Paul's words from Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. God has seen fit to make entrance into his kingdom filled with difficulty. And while God has brought us to this compromised position, let's look for what he does. Look at what God does next in this text. First thing is that overarching thing from 10 through 32 is that God leads us into conflict to save. We've seen God lead. We've seen God lead into conflict. Now he leads into conflict to bring about his salvation. And it starts in verses 10 through 14. Israel sees Egypt and, and responds with fear. Look what he says. When Pharaoh drew nearer, the people of Israel, Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is, this, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I love this passage. I love this text. They feared greatly, right? Israel sees the armies of Egypt descending upon them, and they realize that they're pinned, right? They've got the sea behind them. They've got the wilderness around them, and they've got the armies of Egypt coming down upon them, and they just cry out, say, Lord, we, we need your help. But it's amazing how quickly that cry to the Lord, which is a good thing, turns into a complaint against Moses, how quickly our fear turns into irrational complaints. Look at what he said, or they say in verse 11, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? It's not just a complaint, it's sarcasm. Verse 12, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptian. See, amidst their fear, Israel has completely forgotten about children being drowned in the Nile River. They've completely forgotten about Pharaoh's disdain for them. 
They've completely forgotten about their subjugation to a tyrant. They've completely forgot about, and most importantly, they've forgotten that they are the firstborn son of the living God. Notice how God reorients them through his servant Moses in verse 13. Fear not. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation. Starts, fear not. In our text, remember, Moses knew a thing or two about fear. Remember back in chapter 2, when Moses had struck down this Egyptian, he buried him in the sand, and his sin is found out, and Moses flees. He knew about fear. But he calls them to stand firm. Tell me this doesn't sound like this impossible task, right? You have six or a thousand chariots coming down upon you. You have a sea behind you. He calls them to stand firm. But notice what Moses' confidence is. He says, see the salvation of the Lord. This servant of God that went from saying, send someone else, Lord. He's now saying, stand, see. So verses 15 through 20, God directs the Israelites into the sea. Look with me. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through uh, the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. See, God moves Israel to action. God says to Moses, hey, why are you praying to me? Just move forward, right? Isn't it obvious? Just raise up your staff over the sea, and it's going to split. And not only that, you're going to walk across, not through muddy ground, you're going to walk across on dry ground. And then I'm going to glorify my name in the Egyptians. So you just watch. Look at what happens. Verse 19, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the, the other all night. And so God positions himself between the armies of Egypt and his people. Does this sound familiar? God interposes his presence in between the enemies of his people and his people themselves. Verses 21 through 29, Israel passes through the Red Sea. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind and all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Israel goes into the midst of the sea, but only one nation is going to emerge. 
By God's prompting, Moses raises his hand to cause the sea to split. And by God's prompting, Moses raises his hand to bring the waters back on top of the nation of Egypt in verses 26 and 27. Notice how the the text repeats itself in verses 27 and 28. We're going to get there in just a second. Look at 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed him into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. See, Israel walks through on dry ground. Egypt is crushed by these waters, all as God directs his servant. See, while Israel walks across the sea on dry ground, the Lord had thrown Egyptians into the midst of the sea. I love what he says in verse 30 and 31, this kind of synopsis. Now listen intently to what Moses writes for us here. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw that the Egyptians had died on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. It's here that this whole story takes its meaning. Think about the impact of this image. You have just walked day and night, and you just walked across a sea on dry ground. You saw waters piled up right hand and left hand. And when you get to the other shore on the other side, you watch those waters crash down upon your enemies so that their dead bodies start floating up to the shoreline. In that moment, you are absolutely sure of God's power to save, aren't you? Is there any doubt in your mind that this God who travels with you is absolutely powerful to save? And the upshot of it all is given in verse 31. Notice the the order of what's stated here. Israel saw God's power. Israel feared the Lord. Israel believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. See, whatever happened to cause Israel's temporary insanity in verses 11 and 12 is gone. Sanity has been restored. Fear has been replaced by fear of the Lord. And with that, it is checkmate, isn't it? The game is over. The king is toppled. God has so situated the board that a loss seemed inevitable. But now, through his providence, God has saved his people. The truth that I see here this morning that I think comes out as we study is that God reorients our fear by saving us from our enemy. Notice one thing that's happening here is that God is displaying his glory in saving his people. As he does so, he addresses Israel's fear. If we've been paying attention, Israel had no shortage of fear of Pharaoh. Remember back to chapter five, Moses goes and he speaks to Pharaoh and he says, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I don't know who Yahweh is and I don't know who you are. 
What you need is you need more labor because you're idle. And so he asks them to do the same amount of work, building the same amount of bricks, but also having to collect their own straw. And what happens is, is Israel just freaks out. And they come back to Moses and they make this statement, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. And you've put a sword in their hands to kill us. That's their complaint, right? I'm afraid that Pharaoh's going to kill us. You've made us stink. You've made us a stench in his nostrils. Hear that fear? It's restated again here in chapter 14. We see Pharaoh pop into the story and Israel just crumbles. This nation that's ready for war, like we saw in chapter 13, they've got their sticks and their stones. And when the chariots show up, it's like they just don't know what to do and they just crumble. But Israel's fear had to be replaced with another fear. Let's just speculate for just a second here this morning. If God just sent a a presence and he picked up all of the Israelites out of Egypt, no conflict, free of charge, and he just moved them back to the promised land. Or what would happen if if God sent a, a massive earthquake into Egypt, causing absolute destruction of the systems that are placed there so Israel could leave free and clear? See, my argument is this morning is that God had to take them through this route where they would see his power and his authority so that they might learn to fear the Lord. One of the things that's going to happen here in this book, a few chapters, the nation of Israel is going to come to Mount Sinai and God's going to approach them. He's going to say, hey, consecrate yourselves. Tomorrow, I'm meeting with you, nation. You better consecrate yourselves. You better be set apart for my purpose. And what happens is thunder and fire and clouds show up on Mount Sinai, and all of Israel just shakes in fear. So God's getting them ready. Let's just orient you to the fear of the Lord. Because what I want to do is I want to dwell in your midst, and you've got to have a fear of me. Can't just pick you up and take you out of Egypt. I got to teach you how to fear me. Look at how this fear is used this morning. In chapter, chapter 14, verse 10, Israel is afraid. They're greatly afraid, according to the text. And, and then in verse 13, Moses says, Fear not. Stand. See. We find the resolution in verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed. God saves us to a particular proper fear. Some of us, we love to do this fear faith thing. I'm not, I'm not afraid. I have faith. What I'm here to tell you this morning is that faith is fear. You don't have faith without fear. Your faith is properly oriented fear because you're a weak person. See, all of this reminds us that there was one who faced a difficult providence from God. That even though he had done no wrong, his own people turned against him, 
He was betrayed by his countrymen. He was sold into the hands of his enemies by his closest friends. And to the point of his death, Jesus was marked by confidence in his father's words. Jesus evidenced a proper trust. And now his trust for all who have faith stands before the righteous, holy God and pleads a better word than my mistrust and my anxiety and my fear. All of my misplaced fears are swallowed up in the trust and confidence of Christ. So I'm no longer condemned for my fearfulness. I'm no longer condemned for my anxiety. I'm no longer condemned for any of those things because Jesus has taken it upon himself and he's paid for it in full. And he gives me his confidence and his righteousness through his sacrificial death and resurrection. See, what you need, Christian, is you need a proper fear coupled with this promise of God that he's not going to condemn you, that he's not going to judge you. It's what John says in 1 John 4. He says, perfect love casts out fear. When we see the perfect love of Christ, there's no place for fear except for that proper oriented fear, properly oriented fear vertically to our God. I just want to prove it here from another passage because I want us to see this. John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We remember this. Jesus has been crucified. He was laid in the grave. They closed the tomb over him. Look at what verse 2 says. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is she running? Afraid. Peter and John run. And they show up. And look at what verse 8 says. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. Sound familiar? Mary shows up and she's weeping, looking for the body of Jesus. And she thinks it's just the gardener there with her crying, 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 weeping. Verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Verse 16, Jesus opens her eyes. Jesus says, said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. But in the midst of this, she returns and she says, Rabboni. Right? She recognizes who Jesus is. You see a third instance in Thomas. Disciples are afraid they're in the upper room. They're hiding from the Jews. Fear marks them. In fact, it says it verbatim. Verse 19, on the, wedding, on the evening of the first day, the first day of the week, the doors <laughs> being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus comes in, he shows himself. Thomas isn't there. Thomas makes this statement, verse 25, says, unless I see in his hands, that's the hands of Jesus, the marks of the nails, and place my finger uh, into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. If I don't see, I won't believe. 
what happens. Jesus shows up. Verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See what happens? They see. They see God's salvation. They believe. Fear is eradicated. Beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, they are being transformed. When we see God's glory in salvation, our fear is stripped and replaced with a better fear, the fear of the Lord. See, our fear needs to be appropriately placed. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, I I don't know if I believe any of this. I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I don't know anything. I don't know if I trust in this. And here's my question to you. Who is there to save you? What is there to keep you from your fear, from the worst outcomes? What is it? Is it your own strength and ability? Is it just good luck? What is it that's going to keep you from just being handed over to your greatest fears? Submit, there's nothing for that to happen. You'd be far better off to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ and to find your fears stripped away and replaced with a better fear. If you're here this morning, you claim Christ, your, your fear of worldly things is misplaced. Truthfully, our fears reveal our idols, our misplaced affections, the things that we love more than God, the, the horizontal orientations of our heart. Proper fear is reverence to the Lord himself. And it happens, it's cultivated by this understanding of God's saving work that he's given us in Christ. If you want to be stripped of that fearfulness that marks you, understand God's goodness in the gospel. And as you understand God's goodness in the gospel, the impossible work that he did, I promise you that your fear of man will be replaced with the fear of the Lord. I pray to this end that God allows us to have properly oriented fears. And he might strip away our anxieties by his grace and his goodness. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that now. We ask that you might take our fearfulness that you might expose it to the light of your glory, we see most notably in your saving work in Christ. You might replace that fear with reverence and fear for you. Lord, be honored to work in us, to cultivate in us a, a love and orientation to you so that you would be glorified and honored in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.